I think clapping was appropriate. Thanks for doing that. Uh, that first service, you know, no clapping. So I don't know. You guys, yeah, thanks. Well, let's talk about partying. Anybody like to party? Yeah, yeah, okay. Did a lot of that last weekend, right? There's this, this football team in New England that we partied before the game, and then we partied during the game, we partied after the game. And then two or three days later, we threw another party and a parade. I mean, it was, yeah, it was an incredible amount of celebration and partying over this team called the Patriots. And we had just, you know, we just had New Year's parties in January. We'd, we'd had Christmas parties in December. I mean, we're about to have Valentine parties this, this week. Uh, we love parties, graduation parties, birthday parties, right? We celebrate the day of our birth. Let's throw a party. I was born, right? I mean, we, we love parties. And we love the food, we love the drink, we love the music, we love the dancing, the games, the people, the talking, the laughing. But what about God? What, what, is, what does He think about parties? He's actually a fan. He's a fan of parties, of celebrating. Now, He doesn't support everything that happens at particular parties, uh, but there's definitely a lot of partying that goes on in the lives of God's people. And you see that in the Old Testament. I mean, there's three festivals where they all come back to Jerusalem, and it's for the purpose of celebrating, partying for, for a week. So God, God is definitely into celebration. Some of the, the greatest partying that would go on uh, in the lives of God's people, especially in the Old Testament, was the, the week of a wedding. They literally would celebrate for an entire week of feasting and singing and dancing and celebrating the joining of this new bride and this new groom. And it is at a wedding party that Jesus reveals himself to the public. This is kind of his moment to, to go public. I mean, you just heard it read about in John chapter 2, so grab a Bible. There's ones under your seat. There's probably one on your phone. Surely you can find John chapter 2 somewhere. John chapter 2, verse 1. You just heard this read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus is a human. He has a mom. He seems to have lost his dad. We don't really hear about Joseph and, and after Jesus is like age 12. He's never mentioned again. So, so most people would say he probably died early in, in, in Jesus' life as a, as a kid. Uh, he has friends. He has family. He got invited to a wedding. Sometimes we think Jesus is sort of like, he's got a halo and he's like floating around. No, he's, he's a guy. He's a human. And he has friends and family and he would gather with them to celebrate. And that's what he's doing in this, this wedding. And everything's going great until disaster strikes. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, Mary seems to have some ownership of this wedding. She doesn't seem to be like a third-tier guest. 
You know, when you go to a wedding and you, you're kind of wondering, like, why did they invite me? I'm not that close to them. But you go anyway, and, and, and you know, if you're there and the wine runs out, you're like, well, too bad, you know, and kind of gossip at your table about it. But, but that's not what Mary does. She, she's like, we're going to solve this problem. So I don't know if she's a co-host or, or what, if it's a cousin or someone close to her, but she's very concerned about it, and she's owning this running out of the wine. And she reaches out to Jesus, and Jesus seems a bit hesitant. He doesn't seem to have as much ownership of the festivities as, as Mary does. Now, the question is, is this normal mother-son banter, or is there something more going on? And I would say there's, a, there's more going on. And what you see him do, and you see him do this multiple times throughout the Gospels where he kind of puts some distance between him and Mary. Now, he's not disrespectful or dishonoring, but he lets people know she does not have an inside track to him. Right? He's a, he, he, he calls her woman. He, he, he kind of puts some distance. Now, he does this in other, other places. There are other places in the Gospels where uh, mom and brothers are outside this house where Jesus is doing some teaching, and they're standing there at the door, and they're telling the person at the door, hey, tell Jesus we're here. And when they say, hey, your mom and, and your brothers are here, he goes, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Th- those that are obedient in the kingdom of God. And he, he, he does this thing where he puts some distance between him and his family. Now, I'm sure it wasn't always like that when he was eight years old. It wasn't like that. And Mary was like wiping his nose, all right? But when he rolls out his ministry, he lets people know she does not have an inside track. She comes to him through the exact same track by grace through faith like anybody else. Now, when he, 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 he makes this comment kind of as an offhand phrase uh, he reveals this very important concept that you're going to see repeated again and again in the Gospel of John, and it's the concept of my hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. You're going to see that multiple times, my hour, my hour, my hour, and then at the end of the Gospel, we're going to see that his hour is going to come. The time is going to come. And so this is kind of this reveal that's being rolled out and built up to all of his teachings, all of his miracles leading up to the hour. And you'll just have to stay with me throughout the whole sermon series to know what that hour is, unless you already know. Uh, Mom's reaction does seem to be kind of a typical mom reaction. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She just won't take no for an answer, right? (laughs) She's just like, just do what he says. And then she walks off. I don't think she was expecting a miracle. I don't think Jesus had already made it a habit of making catering miracles. You know, oh, we're one sandwich short for the picnic. Hey, Jesus, do something about it. I don't think that was a norm. And from, from what we can tell, that he hasn't really been doing any miracles. This is the first one. And so I think she's gone to her firstborn, partly probably because she doesn't have a husband, and he's kind of taken the, the sort of become the patriarch of the family, and she's going to him and she's like, I need you to do something about this. I need you to fix this problem. And he fixes it. He fixes it. But he does it in an incredibly unique and meaningful way. So here's what he does. Verse 6. Now there were six stone jars, water jars, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. What you're seeing in, the, in those passages, you're seeing the making of a miracle. It's different than magic. It's not magic. There's no magic wand. There's no presto changeo. It involves people. Uh, it involves people that you would, would think would be very unlikely. That would be the participants, right? Servants. These are slaves, indentured servants. These are, these, are, these are folks that are at the very bottom of the ladder in that room. And the God of the universe is inviting them in to participate in this very significant miracle. It's difficult. They would not have been able to carry those stone jars to the water source, fill the jar completely up, and then carry it back. They would have to have shuttled the water over 150 gallons that would have taken some time. There were no faucets to turn on. Either had to go to a well or a stream. It was hard. It was hard. And then it gets risky because he says, now take some of that over to the master of the banquet. This would have been sort of the head of catering, their boss, and saying, hey, we, we've solved the wine problem. Let's just serve them water. <laughs> this is a, a great way to get fired maybe even punished. And so it becomes not only difficult, but risky. Now, here's what happens. Verse 9, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is kind of a low-key miracle, sort of a semi-public miracle. The servants know about it. The disciples obviously know about it. I mean, John, the gospel writer, knows about it. He puts in these little details like they filled it to the brim. He's letting us know, I was there. I saw this happen. And so... They, they, they take the water in the cup, they bring it over to the master of this banquet, they give it to him, and I'm sure they're kind of waiting for the rebuke, and then he says, this is great, this is the best wine I've ever tasted, why did you save this for the last? Nobody does this, nobody does this. They, they, they front the good wine, and then when everyone's a little tipsy, then they bring the cut wine, right, wine that's been cut with water. And they did, they did that a lot. It's, it's in fact, how, how they would be able to drink water without it making them sick is, is that they would mix water with wine. And he's saying, this wine, yes, it's tasty, it's full-bodied, it's intoxicating. Why would you pull this out when everyone's already feeling tipsy? Right? Now, what is, what is this story about? I, I, is this just like some hosting tips regarding weddings. I mean, no, there's much more going on here than that. Jesus is seeing an opportunity to stop a party from ending and making it better than it ever could have been, right? He's, he's stopping a party that was about to end. No wine, no party. 
And, and the reason that the master of the banquet is talking to the bridegroom is, is because the bridegroom was in charge of the wine, and he screwed up. He, he didn't get enough wine for the party. And this is supposed to be a week-long party, most likely. And so Jesus stops the party from ending, but even more so, he makes it better. And he does that because he's enacting a parable about himself. He's not just concerned about a party. (laughs) He's concerned about communicating truth about himself. He sees himself as a bridegroom. And he has brought the best wine. Jesus' coming is cause for celebration. There's a cosmic wedding that's happening. God himself, the bridegroom, is marrying, is going into relationship with his people. And this is cause for celebration, the greatest of celebration. This theme's picked up in the very next chapter of John. John the Baptist is... Uh, answering some questions. People are saying, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he's letting them know, nope, no, I'm not. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 28 says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist sees himself as the best man. The job of the best man is just to make sure that the bride and the bridegroom get together, that the wedding goes off. It happens. And he says, this is making my joy full. This is making my joy complete, that this is happening, that the Christ is showing up, the bridegroom we've been waiting for, the good wine. And now it's time to celebrate. Jesus' coming is the cause of greatest joy. It's the cause of greatest celebration. When Jesus is questioned about some of the behavior of his disciples, uh, he talks about this bridegroom kind of idea. Um, The Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were pretty serious and sober, boring. And they did a lot of fasting and a lot of repenting and a lot of talking about sin, all of which is important, but they didn't celebrate very much. And so people were watching Jesus and his disciples They seem to be celebrating. And this is Matthew 9, verse 14. Disciples of John came to him and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Again, Jesus is saying, My arrival is like the bridegroom showing up. Of course we're not fasting. Can you imagine having a wedding and then the big wedding reception and you got the china and the candles and the goblets and everything's out and the master of, of the banquet comes out and says, so instead of eating, we're going to fast. No food for this wedding party. No drink. We're just going to... That, that would be completely inappropriate, right? And would completely stop the party. Jesus is saying, my arrival is cause for celebration. It's cause for deepest joy. He is the one we've been waiting for. And the Jews honestly thought maybe the party was over. 
They hadn't really heard from God in, a, in 400 years. And then this, this John the Baptist guy shows up and he's like screaming at them and telling them to repent and that they're sinners. And they're just thinking the party is over. And Jesus shows up and says, oh, no, 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 the party's not over. It's just getting good. You've been waiting for the best wine. You've been waiting for the deepest celebration, the deepest cause for joy has arrived. And so because of that, Jesus is the center of all of our, sep- our celebration. Not the patriots, not presents, not even the day of your birth is not the center of your celebration. That doesn't mean those things aren't celebrated. They are, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating. But when those things are the center of our celebration, that means they're an idol that we worship. We know what our idols are by what we celebrate. And so if Christ is not at the center of those things, they they are obviously idols. But if Christ is at the center of our celebration, then those things can be appropriately celebrated. I don't know, have you, have you noticed at times when you know you've put something at the center of your celebration that is not Jesus and you get hyped up about it and excited about it and then when the thing happens, it lets you down. Every time. Every time. But when Christ is at the center of our celebration, then we can appropriately enjoy those things because we know they're not at the center. They're in the second tier celebration stuff. And because of the grace of the gospel, we know that that's where those things came from in the first place. They came as gifts from a loving God. Now, part of why there's such celebration that Jesus, the bridegroom, and his people, the bride, are together is that the bride has committed adultery against Jesus. And so the coming together <laughs> is, is a pretty amazing thing that this could even happen, right? Uh, I've done a lot of weddings. I, I, I love doing weddings. I've probably done 125 weddings in the course of being a pastor. And there are amazing celebrations and a lot of crazy, quirky things happen in the, in the, the midst of these, these weddings. But the one that stands out is uh, this, this young bride and groom and, and to be, we, we had premarital counseling and we had a great time and they're just a lot of fun. And uh, two days before the wedding is to occur, I hear this knock on my door and I go to the, the door and like, who, who is it? And, you know, who could this be? And I was kind of sleepy and not all there. And I, I open the door and, and it's this bride to be and this groom to be. And they're bleary eyed and, and crying. And I'm like, what is going on? And they said, we, we need to talk. I'm <laughs> like, Okay. So we go down, we sit in the living room, and they, they kind of talk me through it. And so what had happened is that the night before, they had a big party for their uh, wedding party and their friends. And, and so they were at this campus where they were able to use, like, dorm rooms. And so they were, nobody was driving. It was just this great setup. And they probably had a little bit too much to drink, and they all went to bed. Well, the groom-to-be, he sleepwalks. He gets up, walks across the hall, goes into another room, crawls into bed, one of the bridesmaids... And he wakes up the next morning, and they're like, ah, what, what just happened? 
And so he gets up, runs over to the bride-to-be and says, I'm so, so, so sorry, I was sleepwalking, I, I wound up in her bed, but that's not what happened and nothing happened. And, and she was like, yeah, right. And she was totally distraught and upset and angry. And, and so here they were in my living room and it's like, Pastor, you know, this is what, what's happened. So I'm like, okay. Uh, by this time I was, aw- I was awake. And I, I'm like, okay, to groom-to-be. I'm like, you just get in the car, you go home, okay? I'll talk to you later. And so try to talk bride down and walking through it. And, and I really, I sincerely, I, did, I believed, I, I knew this guy pretty well, and I really believed that what had happened, what he'd said had happened, had happened. And, and so she left. She was not convinced. She was upset. And so the next day is the rehearsal, and I walk in, and they're still bleary-eyed and teary, and now the parents are bleary-eyed and teary, and it's like the most miserable rehearsal ever, right? I mean, everyone's just like got this dark cloud looming over them, and uh, we get through the rehearsal, we go to dinner, it's horrible, everyone's sad, every, you know, and, 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 and they, as far as we know, there's going to be no wedding the next day. And so after the dinner, the two, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be, they go for a walk, a long walk, and they talk, and they work it out. And the next day, the wedding was the most glorious wedding I've ever been a part of. And it was because of that backstory, right? All that pain and struggle and forgiveness and grace. And when those two stood before God and, and their friends and family and made a covenant, uh, it was a celebration. <laughs> now, what if... Not only that had happened, but one of them had died for a few hours and had then come back to life. Because that's our story, okay? When we sinned against a holy God, when, when, when we committed spiritual adultery against God, we died. The chances of this wedding happening between us and Jesus, zero. But what this groom did... To save his bride was to give his own life, to shed his own blood. He didn't forget to bring the wine. It was the wine of his his own life being poured out. And so as we come into relationship with Jesus, this is the backstory, and this is cause for celebration. This is cause for deepest joy. Now, you may be asking, how do I get an invite to this wedding? It's revealed in that verse 11 there. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Consider yourself invited. Invited to believe, to trust in, to put faith in the crucified, buried, resurrected, soon to return Christ. This is how you become part of the party, is you believe. You get a glimmer of his glory. That's what those disciples got through that miracle. Now, John calls it a sign. I think it's a great, it's a great word for a miracle, right? A sign says that this display of power is actually pointing to something deeper, that Jesus isn't just doing miracles for miracles' sake. He's doing it to point to his identity, 
And so as he points to who he is, those disciples were able to place their faith, their trust, their belief in Christ. Same is true today. He's, he's revealing himself to you. He may have done that through some friends that are Christians and you've just seen the way they live their lives and the way they interact with each other and you're like seeing a glimmer of the glory and it's drawing you into a place of faith in Christ. You may be getting a reveal of Christ through his word as you're reading through the reading plan this semester and you're looking into scripture or maybe from sermons you're hearing. Or I don't know. There's all kinds of ways, including the miraculous where Jesus reveals his glory. And as you see that glory, then you come to the place where you believe, you trust in, you put faith in Christ, the Christ of the Bible. That's how you get to be a part of the party. Now, those of you that have already done that, I want to say a little bit about celebration and the importance of celebration. Um, of, of Christ, right, as our, the center of our celebration. Number one, it's supernatural. It's supernatural. I don't always naturally feel like celebrating Christ, okay? And I'm the pastor. This morning, I'm waking up. I'm like, oh, it's going to be snowy. If I was like a normal person, maybe I'd just roll over. But I have to go and preach, right? So, so I've got to get myself out of bed and go celebrate Christ, right? I mean, th th this is all of us. If, if we're going to continue to have Christ as the center of our celebration, we're going to have to be supernaturally sustained in that celebration. And this is, you see this in scriptures both in the Old Testament and the New. Look at, at Psalm 51. David prays this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why would he pray that if he didn't lose it sometimes? He lost the joy of his salvation. He's saying to the Lord, restore that in me. I need you to restore my joy, my, my ability to celebrate Christ as the very center of my joy. Uh, Jesus says something similar, John 16, 24. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He, he, he's saying... When you pray, part, part of why you pray and what you pray for is, is for joy. Because oftentimes that can, can kind of get snuffed out, right? We know that joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That, that the joy of our salvation is not coming from, from something that we sort of muster up. It's something that God's Holy Spirit is manifesting in our life. So number one, it's, it's supernatural, Number two, it makes us strong. Makes us strong. Celebrating, having the joy of our salvation makes us strong. In the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, you have this moment where Nehemiah has confronted the people of Israel with their sin and they're grieving over that, they're repenting of that, and they should, and it, it's a good moment. But then he shifts... In Nehemiah 8.10, he says, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your strength. This, this celebrating of Christ, of the salvation that comes through Christ, it is your strength. They say, well, why is it your strength? Well, because it's the only way you can maintain strength in the midst of suffering. 
when those other lesser things have let you down and they're no longer bringing you joy, you need to have something at the very center of your joy, at the center of your celebration that's beyond this, this world. I mean, you hear it in, in Paul writing to the Corinthians in the 2 Corinthians 7, 4. He says, this is just the last little phrase of this scripture. He says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. That is a strange thing to say. Would you agree? Usually when I'm experiencing affliction, I'm not thinking I'm overflowing with joy. But what he's saying is at the center of my celebration, at the center of my joy is Christ. And so because of that, even when things are not going well, I can continue to have joy. I can continue to celebrate. And that gives us strength in the midst of that suffering. Number three, this ongoing celebration of Christ as as the center of our celebration, it makes us one. Celebration in general kind of does this, wouldn't you agree? I mean, just think about the celebration that went on around the patriots. I mean, you had rich and poor and black and white and men and women. All kinds of different kinds of people are in the streets of Boston, and for just a little time, they're just all the same. They're even wearing the same stuff. They've, they've all become one in this moment of celebration. Well, even more so, that reality is true, should be true for those of us in Christ that share this, this the center, the same center of celebration. It helps us to, to become one. Jesus uh, says uh, something along those lines in Matthew 22. Uh, he's telling a story about the kingdom of God and what it's like, and he says what it's like. It's like a party. It's, it's like a, a feast, and he's like, it's a feast where we've sent out invites, and those that were invited don't want to come. And so the people given the invites go out into the street and start just inviting anyone who will come. And so this is what he describes. He says, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And he's, he's, he's saying both the low and the lofty are all coming together in celebration. And they're celebrating the salvation that comes through Christ. And partly why they're celebrating that way is because both the low and the lofty both realize how desperate they are. They're all low. They're all in need. And and they're so glad. They're so full of joy over the salvation they've been given in Christ. And that celebration makes them one. And then fourthly, When we celebrate Christ as the center of our celebration, when we celebrate our salvation, draw our joy from that, we're reflecting the way God celebrates our salvation. Some of you know the the prodigal son parable that Jesus tells, where the younger son goes out, takes the inheritance that he's been given by his his father, he completely squanders it, he kind of comes to his senses and decides, I've totally blown it, I'm going to go back to my dad, I'm going to confess my sin, I'm going to ask him to just put me on as like a slave in in his kingdom. And so he's walking back toward the home and before uh, he can even get back to the house, the dad sees him, runs out, gives him a hug and says this, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father in the parable represents God. (laughs) 
And he's saying, let's celebrate. Not because the son made some awesome grades. I mean, you can celebrate that. That's fine. But that's not why he's celebrating. He, he, he doesn't celebrate because, oh, the son got a great job and he's really making something of himself. That's, that's not, he's, he's celebrating because he's reconciled with his son. He, he, he's, he's been distant. He's been separated because of sin. And now they're together. God seems to be more excited about our reconciliation than we are. And so when we celebrate, when we have this joy for our salvation, we're, we're reflecting who God is. He's a God who is celebrating that salvation. And again, I'll say it again, this enables us to enjoy rightly the things of this world. What I'm not saying is we should be walking around going, oh no, I don't watch the Patriots because I just think about Jesus and read my Bible, right? That's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying is that at the center, even of a Patriot celebration, it's, wow, this is a good gift from God. Like God, God designed teamwork. He, he designed these kinds of human interactions that are just so sweet and fun and life-giving. We know where they're from. <laughs> this isn't just some sort of evolutionary naturalism that just sort of came up with the patriots. Like, like God is underneath this common grace that even if most people don't even realize where it's from, we do. And we know ultimately it comes by the grace of God at the cross. And so it, it helps us to properly celebrate those things that are in our day-to-day -day life. This is what we're coming doing when we come to this table. We, we're doing a lot of things. I mean, I think we've, we've found that. I mean, every week it seems like there's a new little glimpse of what this table means. But one thing that this table means is that we come together to celebrate and that Jesus is the host. And He is a gracious, gracious host. And He took bread. On the night in which He was betrayed, He broke it, gave thanks for it, Gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and after they had blessed it, that he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. This bridegroom did not forget the wine. And he paid an incredibly expensive price so that it could be offered. This is what we celebrate when we come to this table. That we who had committed spiritual adultery against God, who, who should have had zero chance, zero chance of being reconciled to him as his bride, by God's grace, have been brought back in relationship with him. This is our salvation. And this is cause for, for deepest, deepest joy. And again, if you want to be a part of the party and, and you're, you're just uh, hearing this, but you feel like, I think I know enough about the gospel, maybe something you've read, things that you've heard uh, in conversations you've had, maybe things you've heard preached here, and you're like, I don't know everything, but I know enough. I, I'm ready to trust in Christ this morning. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to, to reach out to him in prayer this morning and ask him to forgive your sins and to yield yourself in faith to him as your king. And he, 
He loves that prayer. It's, he, he died so that that prayer could actually be a real prayer. And so if you're there this morning and you know, I, I, I want to I move toward God in faith in His Son, uh, do so now. And let us know about it. You can tell me after the service or maybe indicate it on your connection card. You can let us know that, hey, I did this today. And we'd love to follow up with you on that. Others of us, uh, we, we come here knowing that our joy meter may be, well, I don't know. Depends on who you are. And if you don't have any joy right now in the gospel and in, in Christ, I, I don't want you to beat yourself up about it. But I do want you to think, oh, something's not okay. And to cry out, as David did, restore the joy of my salvation. And don't think, oh, I don't, I don't need joy. I, I, I can just kind of muscle through and grit my teeth. And No, you, you can't. You can't. Without that overflowing joy in Jesus, that celebration of Him as the core of your life, you're not going to have that life, life-giving relationship with Him. So, so go to Him. Confess those places where joy has been snuffed out. I mean, talk about a day where joy can get snuffed out pretty easy. I mean, it, it's been a tough weekend and lots of shoveling at my house. But supernaturally, the joy of our salvation can be restored. So let's pray that, and then let's come up and celebrate. God, we do. We come to You with, with great joy that we who had zero chance of being reconciled to you, to be in relationship with you, that you've made a way for that to happen and, and you have brought the, the good wine and you have brought us into a relationship. So God, we're just so grateful for that. We're grateful that we get to celebrate that as we take the bread and the cup. We ask that you would bless it and that in this time of worship, of, of taking the bread and the cup, Lord, would you restore our joy and may it overflow in our relationships, in our prayer life, in all, all points in our lives, Lord. And we just we thank you for an opportunity to even be reset in terms of the center of our celebration this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.